Well, last week, uh, as Paul mentioned, we looked at the first five chapters of the book of Revelation. Uh, And what we saw was that this revelation, this apocalypse, was a gift from God to Jesus for his servants who were suffering under growing Roman persecution. Uh, Some of these followers of Jesus would have been understandably confused. I mean, if Jesus was risen, if he was victorious, if the kingdom of God was coming, then why were they suffering? Why did Rome still seem to be so firmly in control? Well, in this book, God grants John a God's eye view of history so he can see more clearly the victory of Jesus in the unfolding of God's plan throughout history. Uh, Now, last week we covered uh, in the first few chapters the personal messages of encouragement and where necessary, rebuke, uh, that Jesus sends to seven specific churches. After that, John was taken up into the throne room of God, uh, and from there he witnesses in a dramatic picture the victory of Jesus when he sees a lamb that had been slain sharing the throne of God. Uh, This lamb, as Paul mentioned, was then found to be the only one in all creation who was worthy, worthy to open this scroll in the hand of God. And again, we said the scroll is a kind of, it's a blueprint for bringing God's kingdom to earth. And it's sealed with seven, you know, picture seven big wax seals. Only the lamb was worthy to open the scroll and to begin this process by which God's kingdom is going to come fully to earth. Well, today we're going to do our best to walk through what happens as each of the seven seals on that scroll are opened. Uh, And in the chapters that follow, so chapters 6 through 11, and then later chapters 15 and 16, John actually describes three sets of seven. Uh, There's the seven seals, then seven trumpets, and then seven bowls. Uh, I'm going to try this morning to walk through the first two sets of three, the seals and the trumpets. But before we jump in, I just want to make a couple of introductory uh, observations. First, I just want to remind us, as we get down into some detail this morning, that, that everything that follows begins with the opening of the scroll that was in the hand of God. And so what that means, at the very least, is that everything that happens from here on out in the book was known to God and will in some way serve his purposes. That's important to remember. Uh, as we'll see also, it is the Lamb, it is Jesus who opens the seals. And again, what that is supposed to tell us is that from the resurrection forward, it is Jesus alone who has been given authority to bring this age of history to its conclusion. Now, that may not strike you as theologically profound, but here's my suspicion. If you were in John's audience, if you were a Christian suffering Roman persecution, growing persecution, that for you is a powerful reminder and encouragement. I mean, things may be happening all around you that you don't like and that you don't understand, but God understands them. And you may look at all those things and you may say, I don't know where this is headed. I don't know how this is possibly going to end up how God says it's going to end up. You may not understand it, but what you can do is you can know and trust the one who is steering events and guiding them, and that's Jesus. So we've got to remember that first. Second, all three of these sets, and certainly the first two we're going to look at today, are just packed with dense 
symbolism. But that does not mean that John's audience would have found them either opaque or complicated. We do, but that's because they're not symbols common to our culture, they're common to his. And much of what we might find strange or difficult may have in fact struck John's audience as obvious. I have an example for you. Uh, if you look at this slide up here, all right, if, if you were to take this to, say, uh, Cambodia or, you know, Afghanistan, New Zealand, and you were to ask them, when I show you these two animals, what does that symbolize to you? Uh, my guess is that you would be greeted with some confusion. They'd say, you know, what do they symbolize? I'm, I'm just looking at a an elephant or a donkey here. And if you further added, well, what if I were to paint them red, white, and blue? Would that help you? And you would say, no, actually, that's even more confusing. I don't know why someone would color animals that color. What I'm guessing, though, is that if you were to see a red, white, and blue donkey and elephant, most of you adults in the room, certainly, and probably some of the kids, would know immediately what those two things symbolize, don't you? You know, they symbolize our two major political parties. Not only that, you know what values stand behind those, you know what legislative agenda is associated with those. You could even probably tell me what people would identify themselves with those two symbols. And now, no offense, you know all that not because you're brilliant. I mean, you could still be brilliant, but you don't need to be brilliant to know that. And it's not because you have some deep insight. It's because those are symbols of our culture. They're just part of the air we breathe. We know them without even really thinking about it. John's audience is going to be reading some symbols that are familiar to his context and his culture and his world. And so a lot of things that we look at and we think, boy, that, you know, I don't know why we're talking about what, what kind of teeth these locusts have. But that might have been something that made immediate sense to John's audience without thinking about it. We are going to have to work a little harder. We don't share his culture. Our culture has different symbols. And that means we're going to have to do a little bit of work. I have two suggestions. It's not only helpful for Revelation, but symbolism in any book of the Bible. Two suggestions for helping us interpret symbols. Uh, first, we need to start by looking within the book. John sometimes is just going to tell us what the symbols mean, uh, as he does with lampstands in the first chapter of Revelation. He tells us that Jesus is standing in the middle of seven lampstands, and he says, oh, and by the way, these lampstands are churches. So that's very helpful, because when we encounter lampstands later, as we will today, in a different vision, we can know, oh, okay, these lampstands are churches. John's already told us that's what the lampstands are. Now, he's not always that helpful, uh, and when he's not, the next step is to look back into the Old Testament. Uh, Revelation, honestly, the more you look at it, you, the more you realize it's this incredible compilation, interpretation, and reworking of imagery and symbols from the Old Testament. Uh, you can think of the lamb, the beast, the plagues we'll look at today, the prophets, on and on and on. Uh, you know, just as a side note, if you're looking for a good commentary on Revelation, a good one is going to refer almost endlessly to the Old Testament. And why is that? Because the Old Testament constitutes a huge part of John's shared intellectual world with his audience. Uh, that's where they are going to draw their common symbols and understanding from. 
Finally, uh, I just want to say this before we get into these three sets of seven. I just want to let you know that where I'm coming from. I understand all three of these sets of seven, okay, the seals, trumpets, and bowls, to all cover the same period of time. Uh, that is, the trumpets don't follow the, the uh, seals and the bowls don't follow the trumpets in a sort of linear chronological sequence. Instead, I think these are three visions, three ways of looking at the same period of time with three different foci. All three are going to take us from the resurrection until the second coming of Jesus. Those are the two big markers that we have. Uh, I'm convinced of this for a few reasons, but the most important one is that to my eye, they all end at the end. Uh, John has this little sequence, this combination of symbols, peals of thunder, flashes of lightning, and the shaking of the earth to symbolize the end of the end. Uh, and so I look at that and I think, well, you know what, if all three of these visions end with the end of this age, then it seems to me they're all covering the same period of time. Uh, so we don't have three different sort of sequential sets of seven. We have three ways of talking about the same period of time. Now, I realize that might strike you as odd. It struck me as very strange the first time that, that I started thinking about that. Uh, but it occurred to me, we actually do this more often than you might think. What I have thought about right away this week uh, was watching football film. Now, if you haven't had that uh, experience, uh, congratulations. Um, but it, the way it worked for us in high school was we'd play the game Friday night, Saturday morning we'd get back together, and as a whole team we would watch through the game film. And here's how we would do it. This is, this is totally true. We would watch through the whole game once, focusing only on our team's offensive possessions, and we would fast forward through everything else. Then we would go all the way back to the beginning and we would watch through the game a second time, focusing only on our team's defensive possessions, all right? And then we'd go back to the beginning, go through it a third time, focusing in only on our special teams. Now, that might strike you as odd or a tremendous waste of time. It certainly did to me at points. But you can also maybe see that there's a method to doing it that way, right? By watching all of the offensive possessions together, we would get a much better idea of the overall performance of our offense. Same thing for defense and for special teams. So no one sitting there thought, boy, I thought we only played one game. How are we watching three games worth of tape? Well, it's the same game, right? We're watching it three times, focusing in on different parts of the game. That, I think, is a pretty good analogy for what John is doing here. Uh, he's first going to walk us through this period of time with the seven seals, focusing in on the big picture victory of Jesus. Then he'll take us back to the beginning, and we'll go through with the seven trumpets, focusing in on the mission and the victory of the church. And then we'll go back one more time with the bulls, this time focused on the final defeat of evil. All right, you should know not everyone agrees with me. Uh, plenty of people do, plenty of people don't. Uh, but ultimately, you know what? It's your responsibility. You can read it. You can decide which way you think the evidence points. But I'm just, all I can do is tell you what I, what I think and what I've learned from my study. So let's jump in. Chapters 6 and 7, the seven seals. Uh, all right. These seven start fast. So the first four, the lamb opens one, two, three, four, and as he opens each seal, one of the infamous four horsemen is released to ride out upon the earth. 
Incidentally, this is a great example of we're having the wrong, you know, our current definition of apocalypse and reading that back in to John's book can lead us astray. If you see this and you think, oh, four horsemen of the apocalypse, and if by the apocalypse you mean what we mean and not what John means, then you've already decided what this is about before you even get to the text. You think, oh, these are four horsemen coming in the future, at the end of the world, right? But that's not what John means by apocalypse. He doesn't even call them the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And so if we look at what he, what he writes and we start there, we might end up somewhere different. Notice, he tells us actually right there what each horse symbolizes in the passage. Conquest, war, famine, and death. You know what strikes me when I go through that list? is that all four of these are common to every period of human history that I am familiar with. I I promise you this, John's audience reading about those four would have looked around and went, yep, I see all four of them right now. I mean, the, the Roman Empire engaged almost ceaselessly in war and conquest, Uh, And this was a time and a part of the world where, if anything, famine and death were far more common than they are today. However, I want to point out, we're no stranger to those four in our world today either, are we? No, we're not. And I think that's part of the point. Part of the point of the vision is to say, these four are going to be with us all the way until the second coming of Jesus. We get to verse 9, the lamb opens the fifth seal, and John sees under the altar the souls of those who have been martyred. And it says this, they cried out in a loud voice, how long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then each one was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer, and to the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were martyred just as they had been. Now, it's a sobering one, and I have a couple notes on this just quickly. First, I think we just need to acknowledge that for the followers of Jesus, martyrdom is a very real possibility. At this point in history, we certainly, we learned that there have already been many. I mean, at the point where John looks in on them, there's already a large number, but he's told that more are expected, more are to come. Second, we can see again that God sees them and hears them. And he is somehow working through their deaths. Notice he tells them to wait and to be patient. In other words, God, it's not that God didn't know this was happening. He's not putting off the second coming for no reason. He has a plan, and the plan is still ongoing. And in the meantime, we should note too, in the meantime, uh, those martyrs aren't forgotten about. They aren't left. They're rewarded. They're given right there in the moment, They're white robes that are a symbol of their salvation and eternal life. Then in verse 12, we get to the end that the martyrs are waiting for. The sixth seal is opened, and again, we see this description uh, very common to prophecy from Isaiah, from Joel. The earth is shaken, the sun goes dark, the sky is rolled back. Uh, This is the end of the age and the return of Jesus. Uh, The unrepentant, we discover, They hide. They hide from the coming of God. And and there's this this amazing line. They cry out to the mountains, begging them to fall on them and hide them from the face of the one who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. And they say this, "For for the great day of wrath has come and who can withstand it? But before we take that 
at face value, this is the words of the unrepentant. Notice chapter 7, we get an answer. Who can withstand the day of the Lord? All those who belong to the Lamb. Here we get another great mini-apocalypse. Uh, John sees angels going out to seal all the servants of the Lord. And he hears, he hears that the number that are sealed is 144,000. 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. But then he looks in verse 9. And if you look at verse 9 of chapter 7, he looks and says, But there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And following this joyful scene, the seventh seal is opened, and John says it produced silence in heaven, followed by, here's his little formulation here, peals of thunder, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. And the appearance of seven angels with seven trumpets. But before we get there, I just want to pause a second and ask, what has this first set of seven apocalypsed, what has it revealed to John's audience who are being persecuted by Rome? Well, first, the, the first thing we learn is that God did not intend for the cross and resurrection to put an immediate end to sin and evil and death. We've just been told that after the victory of the Lamb, conquest, famine, war, and death are still going to continue with the important difference that now their days are numbered. Additionally, we've been warned that during this time, many are going to lose their life because of their allegiance to Jesus. But John says, listen, if you're a believer and you look around and you see all these things, you see famine and war and persecution, don't panic. Don't lose heart. Things aren't falling apart. God has a plan, and the plan is working. That gets to the second thing we learn. What's revealed to us is that the time, this time period between the resurrection and the second coming, it's not pointless. It's part of the plan. God isn't delaying for no reason. He isn't ignoring suffering. He is waiting patiently. Remember, he tells the martyrs to wait. He is waiting patiently so that all people might have the opportunity to hear the gospel and believe. That's the plan. And in fact, what John sees when he looks is that the plan will exceed all expectations. The plan is working, however it might look, to believers on the ground being persecuted by Rome. John says, listen, Jesus has in fact purchased a people for God from every nation, a multitude that you can't even count. The cross was not in vain. God's plan has not failed. The plan is working. And John sees it. He sees the results of the plan. All right, let's move to the seven trumpets. With the opening of the seventh seal, uh, it's this little, it's almost like nesting, you know, those Russian nesting dolls. When the seventh seal is opened, John then sees seven angels with seven trumpets. They're sort of nested within the seals. Uh, and where the seals provided this big picture view of the victory of Jesus in purchasing a people for God, the seven trumpets are going to focus in 
uh, on the mission and victory of the church. To my mind, by the way, this is why they're situated within the seven seals. Uh, Not because they follow them chronologically, but rather because the victory of the church is only possible within the larger context of the victory of Jesus. I mean, think about it. If Jesus doesn't win a victory on the cross and resurrection, there is no church, let alone any sense in talking about a victory for the church or mission for the church. So the first six trumpets, again, like the first four seals, they go quickly, and they are a series of divine judgments that are clearly modeled on the plagues of the Exodus narratives. So if you look through, there's hail, chapter 8, verse 7, water turned to blood, verse 8, darkness, verse 12, locusts, chapter 9, verse 3, and then, interestingly, we get to the, the sixth trumpet, where four angels who have been bound at the corners of the earth are released, uh, and they bring a great deal of death. I think those bear a striking resemblance to the four horsemen we just saw in the previous set of seven. Um, You know, you may agree, you may disagree. Uh, But all of these six trumpets are filled with, they're just packed with detail. I mean, there's one point where we're being told about the, the decoration on the breastplates of the locusts, and you're thinking, why are we being told about the breastplates of the locusts? I mean, how how can that possibly matter? But I want to suggest again that perhaps, like the donkey and elephant for us, John's audience may have read those details and known immediately what he is talking about. I mean, for all we know, they'd read that and go, oh, that's the 11th legion. We don't know. They're symbols common to his world. Difficult for us, but presumably, because he knows his audience, it would have made sense to them. But I don't want to get bogged down in the details this morning because the larger point, I think, is pretty clear and obvious. And the point is made clear by the parallel with Exodus, which is that these are judgments poured out in response to the rebellion against the revealed will of God. And just as with Pharaoh and Exodus, these judgments do not produce repentance. Look at chapter 9, 20 to 21. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshiping demons and idols of gold, silver, and bronze, stone, and wood, idols that cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. The result so far is that even after these judgments, many of those on the earth are still not repentant. So then we get to this great little interlude in chapter 10. Uh, An angel shows up holding a little scroll. Uh, Just as a side note, John hears the seven thunders, but we don't know what they say because he's told not to write it down. And and then this angel looks at John and he says, listen, it's almost over. When that seventh trumpet sounds, that's it. That's the end. He says, the mystery of God will be accomplished. Uh, So again, even though we know the bulls are coming later, at this time, the angel tells them explicitly, the seventh trumpet, that's the end. And so before we get to the seventh trumpet, the the angel gives them this little scroll, uh, and he says, eat this scroll, and then write down what you see in the vision. I kind of love this, so I'm just going to tell you. I I think this is an ancient version of like pinch and zoom, okay? So like you do on your phone, you want to zoom in on something, you pinch on it and zoom in. 
So the ancient version of this is, you know, we've been reading the results of a big scroll, but now an angel shows up and gives him a little scroll and says, you know, eat this and zoom in. And so that's what John does. He eats this little scroll. He has a different vision, and he zooms in specifically on the destiny of humanity. Uh, And he starts in chapter 11 to unpack this. And the content of this vision really centers around a conflict between two human witnesses and a beast from the abyss. John tells us in verse 4 that these witnesses are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Now, you remember, we were already told in chapter 1 that the lampstands are churches. So when I read that, what I think is happening here is that John is saying these two witnesses symbolize the portion of the church that is going to be martyred for testifying to the truth about Jesus. And verse 6 describes them explicitly as having the mantle of Elijah and of Moses. Uh, Again, just as Moses and Elijah called Israel to repentance and faith, so the church is to call the world to repentance and faith. Well, so far so good. I hope most of you would be on board with that mission for the church. But then we get to verse 7. And we find that when they finish their testimony, and this is important, uh, the vision is explicit. Until their work is done, no one can touch them, no one can harm them. Uh, They are protected so long as they're doing the work that God has set out for them. But when their work is done, the beast from the abyss is allowed to attack them, overpower them, and kill them. And we see that all the inhabitants of the earth see them. Uh, Again, not because the whole world parades by, I think, but because wherever people carry the gospel in the world, some will lose their life for it. Now, I can understand if you don't find that particularly encouraging. But what I think is interesting is that John seems to think that it is encouraging. John expects that his audience will hear that and will be emboldened because they're learning that even in their suffering, they are advancing the cause of Christ. That in their death, they are somehow sharing in the victory of Christ. And that, for them, was an encouragement. And if it's not for us, that maybe says something about us. Notice what happens, though, in verse 11. The faithful witnesses are resurrected. They are raised to new life and taken to heaven to be with God while their enemies looked on. And then an amazing thing happens. When you get to the end of verse 13, we're told that those who survived looked at the witnesses and they were terrified and they gave glory to God. Now I find that fascinating. It's not after the locusts, it's not after the hail, it's not after the water turned to blood. It is after the faithful testimony of God's people, even unto death. That is how the church triumphs. That is what brings the nations to saving faith and repentance. That then brings us to the final trumpet. The choir of heaven declares the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Messiah and they will reign forever and ever. Heaven is opened and once more we've got John's little sequence of the end. We have flashes of lightning, peals of thunder and an earthquake. So let's pause again and ask what has been apocalypse, what has been revealed to John's audience through these second set of seven? 
Well, as I suggested earlier, the first thing that's revealed, I think, is the mission of the church and the means of its victory. And the mission of the church, personified in these two witnesses, is to faithfully bear witness to the truth about Jesus. Our job as the church is to stand and live in the midst of a deeply troubled and confused world, pointing always to the gospel, calling the world to repentance and to faith. And this is not only the mission. What John also sees is that this vocation is the means of our victory. This is how we conquer. And here again, I think we can lean heavily on the imagery of the vision. Friends, we worship, we serve the lamb who has been slain. We worship a crucified and risen Lord. What these visions have done is to nest on purpose the victory of the church within the victory of Jesus, on purpose. It reminds us, I think, visually and viscerally, that we conquer as Jesus conquered. Not by the sword, not by violence, but by faithfulness to God, even unto death. I know that's a heavy thing to say. But you know, Jesus himself was always clear about the cost of following him. And frankly, as I've thought about it this week, I think that to hide from this truth is an insult to those who have already given their life for the gospel. And many have done it. This is a high calling with a high cost. But don't forget that John also sees that it is a calling with an even greater reward. Salvation, victory, resurrection, and life with God forever. Let me close by trying to offer sort of a big picture summary of these first two sets of seven. Again, it's critical, I think, to put yourself in the shoes of John's audience. They are facing the violence and suffering of an increasing Roman crackdown on what must have seemed to them like an awfully small and fragile church. It looked for all the world like a terribly unfair fight, like certain defeat. It had to look, I think, like a giant beast reaching out to crush a few lone witnesses to the truth. I mean, how could it not? The Roman Empire with all of its might and wealth and power against what? Against what? A few house churches scattered around the Mediterranean world? Where was the hope in that situation? Well, the hope, John says, was in the crucified and risen Lamb. His victory will be the pattern for our victory. And furthermore, John adds, looking down from the heavenly perspective, it's working. All over the empire, as the church continues to live faithfully to Jesus, even in the teeth of persecution, more and more people from more and more nations are bending their knee to Jesus Christ and calling him their Savior and Lord. God's plan isn't failing. It's not limping along. It is bearing fruit beyond anyone's wildest expectations. Listen, I know we face very different challenges in our time and place. Though I think at times to us they seem no less daunting. The church in the West has been challenged repeatedly by nationalism, consumerism, and just general secularism. Uh, sometimes these have looked to us like formidable and even irresistible foes. But I think what John would say to us this morning 
is that whatever the foe, so long as we are the people of the crucified and risen Lord, our victory is always going to come the same way. Not through money, not through legislation, not through the sword, but by bearing faithful witness to the truth in how we live and in what we say. And by the way, in case you're wondering, this isn't my guess at this point, okay? This isn't a strategy that I made up this past week. This is reality, okay? This is what God revealed to Jesus for his church. We know how the story ends. And I want to end just by reminding us of this, because it's worth remembering, and I think we don't do it enough. We do live 2,000 years after John, and in some ways that's a challenge, but in some ways that's helpful, because do you know what we can do that his audience can't do? We can look back on the, the centuries that followed, can't we? And when I look back, do you know what I can't help but notice as I look around? John was right. The visions were true. The Roman Empire is gone. But the church of Jesus, against all odds, is still here. And it is a growing multitude from every nation and every people. The plan hasn't failed. It's not limping along. It is exceeding everyone's wildest expectations. So let's stick to the plan. Would you bow with me as we close in prayer? Heavenly Father, I thank you for the reminder this morning, sobering as it sometimes is, that we know, we know the mission and calling of the church, and that is to bear witness faithfully to the truth about Jesus. God, I pray that as we look at this, that we would be filled with the boldness that filled John's contemporaries. Again, Lord, we know how that panned out. Our predecessors, our brothers and sisters heard this message and they embraced it. They embraced their mission, and they were faithful to you in the teeth of terrible persecution. And Lord, we are the the fruit of that faithfulness because they were faithful, because they chose to participate in your victory. We now today in our context get to participate in your victory. Lord, I pray that that would be an encouragement to us, that it would fill us with courage as we face our own challenges in our own day. God, I pray that we would face those challenges with the same type of courage and joy. And Lord, I pray that we would take comfort in knowing that we do know how the story ends, that we can look around and we can see that your plan works, it is working, and that we might celebrate together as as we, we are a people gathered from many nations, praising Jesus and calling him our king. In your name we pray, amen.